The mighty Mississippi isn't a mighty Mississippi where it begins. Some would even suggest it is a simple little stream, a simple little river. But what makes the mighty Mississippi is all of the tributaries that flow into it. And over the many, many miles of the Mississippi, it becomes a mighty Mississippi. When you see someone who is in ministry, that person is not in ministry because of one thing. Often it is a compilation of a host of tributaries that have poured into that life that make that person who they are. And Calvary Baptist is one of those tributaries that God has put into my life. And though you would hear me often say how thankful I am for Calvary Baptist Church and Pastor Watkins, it's really the whole church that invested in me in that summer, and I am eternally grateful. In my ministry, there are Watkinisms and there are Calvaryisms that are part of my philosophy of ministry. Uh, this last summer, we had a, kind of a neat milestone in which we had our 20th intern that I have had. And all 20 interns, whether they know it or not, their internship was completely crafted in the exact way that Pastor Watkins did with me. You say, what did Pastor Watkins do with you? He didn't know what to do with me, and so he just let me do anything and everything, and everywhere he went, I went. And it was just such a rich, rich summer for me. And I just counted an honor and a privilege to be here today to celebrate with you God's faithfulness in 60 years. Let me begin this way. I am learning, and I should have learned this a long time ago, that some of the richest lessons I learn as a pastor are not in my study. They're in the seasons of life. And what I find is that in the seasons of life, God brings the Word to life to help change and grow me. This year has been a unique season, and in that season, God took a spotlight and He put it on three verses that prior to this year were very familiar to me, but over this year have become deeply meaningful to me, and I'd like to share what I've learned. Would you find in your Bible Hebrews chapter 12 and put your eyes on verses 1, 2, and 3? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. I have no doubt that these verses are familiar to you. And the danger of familiar verses is we can say at the very beginning, I think I know where he's headed. But what if you and I were to listen to these verses with fresh ears, look at them with fresh eyes, and after I read, let's pray and ask the Lord to just help us see his truth. These verses read this way, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Heavenly Father, I pray that these three familiar verses would become very dear verses for us. I pray that I would be very careful in how I explain them. I pray that I would be correct in how I explain them, and that there would be a practical application for every single one of us in this room, not just as individuals, but also as a church as a whole that each one of us would embrace the race that is set before us and finish it well. I pray for your help to be a good, 
preacher and teacher of the word. Help me to be clear, correct, and even interesting in the presentation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. These verses began to come to light to me sitting on an airplane with sunglasses on. And as I began to meditate on these verses, I, instead of trying to figure out an outline, I simply began to ask questions and let the text answer the questions. So I don't have an alliterated outline today. I don't close with a poem today. I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to let the text answer it. And I believe and I pray that in the same way God brought it to life for me, He'll do the same for you. So if you're taking notes today, here's our first question. What is the race? What is the race? Question mark. It's found in verse 1 when he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which does so easily beset us, let us run with patience, the race. What is the race? Now, I don't know if you write in your Bible. I do. And what I did that helps me is to draw a simple little arrow from the word race down to the word Jesus found in verse 2. Not because Jesus is the race, but because understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus did is the key to defining the race. As you and I look at verse 2, Jesus, this person, this God, is described as the author and the finisher of our faith. The word author in its original language is found three times in your Bible. And in those three times, it is translated three different words. The first time it is mentioned, it is defined and interpreted as prince. The second time is saying in right here where we see it, author, and the third time is captain. So prince, author, captain. People who are way more knowledgeable in the original languages than me have said that if you were to take these three words, weave them together, you could sum them up with one word. It's the word pioneer. That prince, that author, that captain, at the very heart of Jesus being the author of our faith is that he is the pioneer of our faith. I appreciate what one author said in describing him as the author. He was the one who pioneered across territory that I could not sojourn to a cross for me. You and I look at these verses and we see that as he sojourned to that cross, across territory that I personally could not, we find that he did it in obedience to God and he went to a cross. It says that he carried my shame, the shame of my sin, and he died in my place. But you and I know that as he died, he did not stay in that grave, but he rose again. And as he rose from the grave, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where he makes intercession for you and for me. And listen carefully. When I put my faith in him and what he did, I enter into the race. To help us just as simply and practically as I possibly can, the race is my Christian life. Your race is the Christian life. The Bible says that he is the author, the pioneer of my faith. He is also the finisher of my faith. 
This is the way it has helped me. And again, I wrote this in the margin of my Bible. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not go to that cross and finish a work. He didn't go to the cross and finish his work. He went to the cross and finished the work so that I, when I put my faith in him, have no work that is necessary to do to have this race. This race, fundamentally, is the Christian life. Notice in verse 1, he says that this race is set before us. It is a race that is specifically designed by God for you. That means that some people entered into this race at an early age. Some people entered into this race at a later age. Some in this room, when you entered into the race of the Christian life, you entered it after years of deep, sinful habits, and you're dragging all kinds of baggage into your race. Some, you entered into the race with some naivety. You didn't know a whole lot about sin. You were four years old. Some people's race, the Christian life, will be years upon years upon years long. I recently buried a dear saint who had been saved for over 70 years. But then I read my Bible about a man on the cross next to Christ who his race was perhaps a matter of minutes. We have a race that is divinely designed by God. Now, regardless of when your race began, regardless of when your race ends, regardless of how you entered into this race, there is one truth that gives us all comfort, and that is this race will be made complete by Jesus Christ. When I finish the race, I enter into glory where I will be glorified and I will be like the one who did the work to give me this race. Does that make sense so far? All right. Now, whisper to your neighbor. I think there's an elephant in the room about this word race. Go ahead and say that, okay? All right. All right. Before you think I'm crazy, I'm just trying to keep us awake for Sunday school. There is an elephant in the room about this word race. Again, it might help you in the margin of your Bible to write the word agon, A-G-O-N. That is the word race in the original language. If I was to add a Y to that word, what's that word sound like? Agony. That's the elephant in the room that the Lord uses a word to describe the Christian life as agony. You say, Pastor, what makes it such an agony? Well, let's think about it. When God saves me through Jesus Christ, He saves me from the penalty of my sin, but He does not remove the presence of my sin. Agreed? And because of that presence of sin in my life, God puts a pressure on me that He calls sanctification so that He can rid that sin from my life and make me more like Christ. And there's not a one of us in this room that goes, I sure love that process. It's easy. In fact, it's sometimes a real agon as the Lord works on that presence of sin in our life. Now, follow me here just for a second. 
as that presence of sin is more and more refined to look more like Jesus, you know what the Bible says? The more I look like Jesus, the more persecution I should expect. There is a pressure from the world because of my stand for Christ. This agon of a Christian life is part of the reality of this life. And he hints at it in verse 3 when he says, it's possible to be really wearied and to faint in your minds as you and I run this race. Now, before I leave this question, let's see if I can kind of apply it in a way that has provided for me just really rich freedom this year. For years, I have heard this word race applied to the roles of our life, the role of my job, my vocation, my being a husband, a father, a pastor. But fundamentally, if I'm going to take this text at its true face value, I have to define the race as my Christian life. There's a preacher by the name of H.B. Charles who said this, and as soon as he said it, I quickly hit rewind. I need to hear it again, and I did it again, and now it echoes in my mind. Here's what he said. My hardest job is not being a pastor. It's being a Christian. But listen to what he said. However, the more I focus on being the Christian God has called me to, the better pastor I become. So often you and I find ourselves in pastor's offices. We find ourselves just really weighted down in front of our Bible trying to figure out how to best fulfill the roles of life. I believe your pastor would say this and echo it. So much of our success in the roles of our life is found in our success as just being the Christian that God wants us to be. The husband in this room who is seeking to be the husband who loves his wife like Christ loves the church. You will never be able to fully do that until you as a Christian understand the love of God for you and you are growing in your love for Him. You show me a man who is doing that and he will begin to naturally love his wife in the way that he should. And you can apply that to all of the other roles of life. I don't know about you, but that is freeing. That causes me to sit back and just take a deep breath and go, okay, I've got one thing I've got to focus on. Be the Christian that God has called me to be. And when that's my focus, it affects all my other roles. We answered the first question. Let's give ourselves a second question. What is the goal of this race? What is the goal of this race? Now, for instance, is it to finish first? Well, if it is, Hebrews 11 says, there's a whole lot of people who've already beat me to the finish line. Why should I run? It's not to finish first. Shortly after we arrived in Folsom, California to pastor at Faith Baptist Church, the church was in a season financially that they were very, very limited in what they could do for us as a family. 
And I had a man in our church who said, Pastor, I'm going to take your health very, very seriously. There's a lot of things we can't do in regards to helping you with insurance and salaries, but here's what I can do. I've signed us up for a half marathon, and you're going to run with me, and I'm going to try to get you healthier. <laughs> now, let's just be really honest. This boy wasn't built for speed. <laughs> All right? I, I am a chaplain with our police department, and there is a man that I lift weights with. He is a beast of a fella, and he wears a t-shirt periodically that says, built to feed, not for speed. And, and I, I am not meant for running. That's just not what I am built for. But partly to disciple him, partly to, to let him be in my life and for me to be in his life, we practiced and practiced and ran and ran. We finally came to this day. Now, again, I'm not a runner. He was. Big day of the race. We find ourselves with just thousands of people to run this half marathon, and I'm looking around, and they're wearing these perfectly designed clothes so that they can just run at a breakneck speed with no wind drag. I've got sweat shorts, my t-shirt, and my running shoes that I bought from Kohl's. <clears throat> I didn't fit in, and I'm looking around at all of these people, and my friend goes, so what's your goal today? I looked around, and I was convinced I would not finish first. So I mumbled to him, well, my goal is not to finish last. <laughs> there are some who say, what is the goal? Well, it can't be to finish first, so I'm just going to try not to finish last. But neither of those are the goal of this race. Notice in the text, let the text answer it. Verse 1, let us run with patience. You guys have a great pastor who teaches you well. If we were going to put another English word for that word patience in the margin of our Bible, what would be a good word that is a synonym to patience? Let me give you a hint. It starts with an E and ends with endurance. Okay, anybody got an idea? Anybody? <laughs> All right. It's endurance. I could say it this way. It's not to finish first. It's not to finish last. It's to finish it's to finish. Yeah. G. Campbell Morgan was trying to teach his people the greater theme of Hebrews. He said in the book of Hebrews, this book teaches the saint to persevere. But this book also teaches us that God through Christ preserves his saints. And he anticipated what all of us ask when we hear those two things and we say, how can I reconcile that there is the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of God of his saints? And G. Campbell Morgan gave to them an illustration of train tracks. He said one side of the train tracks is the perseverance of the saints and the other side of the train tracks is the preservation of God. And the closer you get to eternity or the horizon, the more they come into one Here's the way I best explain it. There is no possible way for a believer to persevere apart from the preserving work of God. And because God, through Christ, did the work, it is possible for every believer in this room to finish the race. 
The call here is don't give up the faith. Cling to the one who is the author and finisher of your faith. You grabbed hold of him at salvation. You hold on to him until the very, very end. To which we now ask our third question. Here's our third question. Is it possible? I mean, is it really, really possible to finish this agon? Is it? And I believe the answer is not just an overwhelming yes. The answer is also a motivation to run this race well. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a whole list of people. And you have to connect those people in that list to what he says at the very beginning of verse 1, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of what? Witnesses. Again, you go back to flannel graph, you go back to Sunday school, perhaps an evangelist that came through and they painted the picture or gave the picture that the witnesses are those in the audience as you run your race. But the word witnesses is not an audience. It's not a group of fans. They are literal witnesses that testify as if in a courtroom giving eyewitness testimony that it is possible to run the race and complete it in a way that pleases God. I go back to Hebrews 11 and I find such joy to realize that in that chapter there are people who started their race later than others. There are some in that chapter whose race seems like a complete uphill run from beginning to end. And then you find individuals like Joseph who it's up, down, up, down, up, down. But regardless of their background, regardless of when they started, regardless of the nature of their race, each one listed there gives testimony that it is possible. But we're not limited to just those witnesses of Hebrews chapter 11. If you've been around this church for any length of time, I am sure you have experienced what we have experienced. And that is watching dear saints of God leave this earth and enter into heaven. I have currently done 251 funerals in my career. Now that is kind of unique to just the way the Lord has offered ministry to me. Many of them have just been in our community when there was a need for a pastor for someone who did not know the Lord and had no church affiliation. But a lot of those have been individuals who were Christians. And when I see in a text like this that I am compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, I'm not just limited to those men and women of Hebrews 11 who lived years ago. It is an unusual blessing of the church that as we stick together for a long time, God gives to the church saint after saint after saint after saint who leave this earth and enter into glory, finishing their race well. 
And so in the same way that I would look at Hebrews 11 and say, there are individuals like Joseph and Abraham who testify that it's possible. I can also put people like Fred, Ida, Cliff, June. I can start putting names of people I actually know. Maybe you're there. The longer I live and the longer I pastor, the more excited I am about heaven because I know more and more people who are there. And each one of them gives testimony that it's possible to run this race. I told you that it's been a season of life and that these verses became very, very real in a season. I told you that I opened these three verses with sunglasses on in an airplane. I had sunglasses on because I was returning earlier this year from my dad's funeral. Every pastor needs a fan. Every pastor needs that one person who quietly cheers them on day in and day out. And for me, it was my dad. Sundays have been brutally hard this year because my dad wasn't a big texter, wasn't a big call you on the phone kind of a guy, but on Sunday mornings I would get a text consistently of a note of encouragement and something along the lines of, I am praying for you today. So I am preaching from his Bible today and I am thinking of him. Because as I flew back from an unexpected passing of my greatest fan, as I opened his Bible, it was Hebrews 12, 1, 2, and 3. And as I read verse 1, my thought was this. I have a new witness in my life. And I know him very, very personally. My dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And life began to quickly change. Very active man, owned a construction company. In fact, the very morning that we discovered his brain tumor, he had spent those early morning hours loading a gooseneck trailer. And he had it loaded down with all kinds of lumber. He had already worked a good two hours, and the sun hadn't even come up yet. And he was getting a cup of coffee and collapsed in the kitchen. He went into surgery shortly after that, and they removed the tumor. And life appeared to be moving forward. But what was interesting is prior to that surgery, in the three days before, we kind of wonder if Dad wondered if he was not going to make it out of surgery. And so one of the things that he did is he had my brother put him in his truck, my brother had to help him in, had to put his seatbelt on, and my dad had my brother drive him all over. And while they drove, he was on the phone calling contractors, calling men who had worked for him, calling customers that he had had, calling people in his church. And in some of those conversations, he was in his mind giving the gospel for the very last time. He was letting young men know that he was proud of them and that they had a lot to give to this world. He'd be a good contractor, he would say. And he was counseling and giving last words. 
It was as if he was getting ready to cross his finish line, and he wanted to do it really, really well. Well, he came out of the surgery, and things were seeming to improve. But just a few weeks later, because of a blood clot, he went home to be with the Lord. But he was afforded something that not all of us are afforded. He was afforded a glimpse of the finish line. And in that moment, that finish line looked really, really close. And so what he did was he picked up speed there in that last burst. And he got ready. But you and I aren't always afforded that glimpse of the finish line. But the Bible does teach that all of us have a finish line. And so what we do is we look at these saints who have gone before us and we recognize, as Ecclesiastes 7 says, you go into the house of mourning and the living lay it to their heart and they consider that I have a finish line that is probably closer than I realize. And I don't have time to play around. But at the same time, that's the reason we don't quit. We don't give up. It is an agon. It is an agony. But we don't quit. I'm a chaplain for our police department. and In that role, I find myself often in conversations about the mental health of an officer. That is the buzzword of our day. You hear it in your jobs. You hear it on the news. We hear it about military, we hear it about law enforcement, we hear it about first responders. And in so many of those things, what I hear people say is, you have to exercise, you need to practice meditation, got to eat right. And there's all of these very, very physical, practical things given for the mental health of individuals. But do you realize in verse 3, he gives the solution to mental health? when it comes to being in this agon of the Christian life. He doesn't mention your exercise. He doesn't mention your diet. He doesn't mention your sleep patterns. He says this, For consider him. Who's the him? It's Christ. And that's my burden with so many law enforcement officers who don't know Christ. I can't really help them with the ultimate mental health that keeps them from being wearied and fainting in their minds until they know Christ. But what a tragedy for Christians who do know Christ to be the individuals who are fainting and weary in their minds and kind of slowing down in the race and kicking their feet, playing in the dirt. Listen. I love Hebrews 11, and so do you. It, um, it plays out like a movie. I love the dear saints of God who have gone on before me that I know personally. But there is no greater witness than Christ himself. And my dear friend, as a Christian, if you want to finish and finish well, Christ has to be our consideration. He is first, then the Hebrews 11, and the saints that I know. And the better I know Him, 
the more I consider him, the greater my chances of not just finishing the race, but finishing it with joy. We come to our fourth question, and it is this. What are the disciplines necessary to endure this race to the end? What are those disciplines necessary? And I think you see three of them. They're just right there in the text. He, he says, laying aside every weight. Now, again, I have heard people, well-meaning, say that that weight is a sin. It's that addiction. It's that habit that you and I need to break. But I'm not convinced that the weight is a sin. Because in the very next phrase, he does address sin. He does say, and the sin which does so easily beset us. So what exactly is the weight if it's not sin? I want you to think of it this way. Athletes don't eat like spectators and fans. Would you agree? I saw a fascinating side-by-side picture. It had Steph Curry and what his pregame meal was before entering onto the court to play basketball, and it showed the average meal being consumed by a fan watching the Golden State Warriors. His was a protein shake and a big bottle of water and a banana. The other picture had two hot dogs, popcorn, nachos, and a big 32-ounce soda. (laughs) Athletes don't eat like spectators and fans. And one of the things I believe he's driving home here is, guys, as a Christian, if you want to finish and you want to finish well, there's just some things that are not part of our life that unbelievers may have as part of their life. And it may not necessarily be a right or a wrong thing. It just means there is a level of discipline. There is a level of discernment about the practical way we live Because we want to run this race and we want to finish it and we want to finish it well. But then secondly, he says, we lay aside that sin. Well, what is the sin? Again, going back to the whole of Hebrews, Hebrews would teach us that one of the things he's driving home is the ultimate sin of unbelief. What is the sin that can so beset, trip, and cause me to quit is very simply this. It's the truth about God that I'm struggling right now to believe. I can't make it any more practical than that, that if today you want to say, I want to make sure that I have laid aside any kind of sin that would beset me, ask this question, what is the truth about God right now, this week, this Sunday? And I'm having a hard time believing. And then choose to believe that truth, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you can see. One Puritan said this, there are some truths about God that will require us to close our eyes while we believe them. Meaning, all of the scenery around this situation seems to speak contrary to what I know about God. And i got to close my eyes to that and just believe God. For me, 
the truth about God that has been repeatedly one of the hardest to believe is that God is good. I personally don't believe that the goodness of God is one of His attributes. I believe it is the attribute that you can attach to all of His attributes. I love to think of it this way. If we were to give God a report card and we were to put all of His characteristics and attributes, His justice, His holiness, His righteousness, His sovereignty, His omniscience, His omnipresence, you put all of those things on the report card. The goodness of God is His excellence in all of those things. It means that in each of those characteristics and attributes, God makes an A+. When it comes to His knowledge of events in my life, He has an A+. But sometimes I think He has a C. His control of all things in my life, always an A+. But sometimes I want to give it a D. God is good. And what He's doing in your life, and why He's doing it in your life, and when He is doing it in your life, is perfect. As I sat on that airplane with sunglasses on, what I began to learn then, and I'm still trying to learn, is how does a son who believes the Bible says that sons take care of their widow mothers? How do I do that 3,000 miles away while I also fulfill the calling that God has given me to pastor in California? I don't know how to reconcile that tension. But God is good. I also wrestled with things like, but dad was like the rock of the family. Why do you remove the rock? He's the one that was kind of the, the pioneer. He was the, the steady one. Could it be that the goodness of God was he gave the entirety of my family a witness? That's why he took the rock. I don't know the answer to some of those things. But I do know this, and I have to keep working at believing it. God is good. And if I start to doubt truths about God, I will trip myself up on this race of the Christian life. There's a lot of buzz about where the world is headed, what's happening in the Middle East, what's going to happen in this new round of the election. I keep telling our church, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know this, there will probably be the DNA of fear in whatever happens. It is going to scare our world, and it's going to scare us. And fear is one of the hardest things to counsel people through. But there is a remedy to fear. It is to have such a deep knowledge of a sovereign, good God that the events of this world and this life don't rattle me. Amen. We have to believe truths about God. There's a third one, and he simply sums it up this way, looking unto Jesus. So we lay aside the weight, we lay aside the sin, and then we look unto Jesus. Again, I am not super knowledgeable and an expert in original languages, but I do know you could say it this way. In that phrase, looking, 
there is a little aspect to it that brings it vividly alive. It is literally the word to look away unto Christ. It's not that in this chaotic world with all of these temptations to doubt certain things about God that I kind of just look through the world and the crowd and I look at Christ. It is the discipline to turn my eyes away from things, to singularly focus on Christ. In the margin of my Bible, I put three words next to that word look. I look at Christ who is my gaze, my guide, and my goal. And I say those three words because it's the best way I can sum up what it means to look away into Christ. He's my guide. I follow Him. He's my gaze. I'm not focused on everything that's going on. And He's the goal. There's not a ribbon when I cross the finish line. There's not someone with a bottle of water. You know who's at the finish line? Christ. And that's the goal. And when I take my eyes off of that goal, or I tend to doubt things about that goal, I'm going to struggle to finish and finish well the Christian life that God has given to me. Let's land the plane, as it were. And I'm going to give you what I like to say are not takeaways, but leaveaways. All right, I'm going to leave you with some things that I hope you take and go with you. Number one. Would you rejoice with me today that there is an end to the agon? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I, there is a day coming when the presence of sin is gone, that process of sanctification is finished, persecution here on this earth is over. There is an end. And I just simply go, whew, amen. Two, I am encouraged in this text that faithfulness to the end is attainable. It really is possible. There is nothing more detrimental or discouraging than to be told, do this, but I don't know if it's possible. God says, run the race, and it's possible to finish. Number three, Christ is at the end. Christ is at the end. When you read the whole of Hebrews, you realize that the people who are receiving this letter, they were people who had lost loved ones for Christ. They were people who had lost possessions for Christ. They were people who had lost comfort for Christ. And the author is saying, in all the things that you lost, look what you gained. Christ. I close with this illustration and we'll be done. Perhaps just like many of you, when we lose someone we love, we're suddenly intrigued with what heaven is all about. We read passages because we want to know what our loved ones are experiencing today. And so there are certain passages that we just keep reading through and we try to imagine, what is my loved one doing right now? What was it like when they entered into heaven? And shortly after my dad's death, my wife showed me a video of a church that had a missions conference. They began that missions conference by allowing the choir to sing a song. Beautiful, beautiful song. And then as the week unfolded, they kept learning that song together, singing it night after night after night. And on the final night, the choir began to sing that song. And suddenly, people entered from the side doors and joined into that choir. 
And as the choir's continuing, suddenly there were individuals from within the audience that stood up and began to sing and started moving their way into that choir. And it was just a very, very moving musical number. But you had all of these voices just adding to the choir as things unfolded. When the Bible teaches that you and I pass from this life to that life, there's not a gate. There's not a disciple that meets us. The Bible would say that the current activity in heaven is that the saints are gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb, the author, the finisher of their faith. And I love to picture it this way. When Dad died that morning, he left a floor and walked into a choir. And as he walked into that choir, that entire choir was singing with focus on the one who was the only reason they were there, Jesus. And I like to imagine it this way. He had two good friends, Joel and Gordon, who went before my dad into heaven. They were kind of cantankerous contractors who were saved later in life. And I can just imagine the two of them singing and suddenly dad steps in, shoulders through them, and they look at each other and it's just for a moment as they acknowledge each other's presence and quickly turn back to the one that was the reason they were there. Can I give you a hint on how a church like you could celebrate 70, 80, 90, maybe even 100 years? It's when each person that's part of that congregation commits to running their race, the Christian life, as faithfully as you possibly can. And you'll wake up years later going, we're celebrating another anniversary. God has been faithful. You be faithful. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in this sweet church that has influenced so many. We do just sit back today and we recognize that we have one primary responsibility to run the race you set before us. Help us to embrace the Christian life you have given to us and to do it well. We want to finish and we want to finish well and we ask for your help. May your blessing and your favor be upon Calvary Baptist Church and every single person who commits to running their race well. We love you today in your name. Amen.